0: As you know, Christian leaders have often had an interesting relationship with politics and the way they have thought through politics. Uh, There's a a really great example historically of this in the late, great evangelist Billy Graham. Uh, You'll remember that Billy Graham is heralded as one of the greatest evangelists of our age, Uh, a man who is uh, heralded as leading thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, even Billy Graham has certain regrets, and one of those regrets centers around politics. Now, you might remember in 1972, uh, he made this statement where he said, I really stayed out of politics. I've really just stayed out. Now, the same year, he began to speak about Richard Nixon. And there he said, I know the president as well as anyone outside of his immediate family. I've known him since 1950, and I have great confidence in his personal honesty. And later, that same year, He said that the race between Nixon and Kennedy was the most crucial the nation had ever confronted. A crucial race, a a very important moment in the the state of that history of that nation. Uh, This nation, he says, it really hangs on this man, Nixon, who we can trust. Of course, in June of 1972, Watergate hit. hit When well, Nixon had five men break into the Democratic National Convention headquarters, uh, from there, an FBI investigation sued. They found out that actually there had been many abuses of his authority and his leadership. Graham, Graham later said that he regretted trusting Nixon and politics too much. But how many of us have been disappointed by leaders? who have a life that, that isn't morally uh, an example of what a leader ought to be, uh, someone who perhaps stands for too little, or maybe someone who tweets too much. Many of us have been disappointed by all kinds of leaders. Judah, Judah was a nation not much unlike us who needed a better leader just like we do. Well, we're back in our Looking at Jesus series in Isaiah 9, 1-7, this morning with King Ahaz... Now, when I say King Ahaz, I almost feel like we as a congregation just start saying, boo, right? I mean, you've seen this guy, and he is an absolute loser. He is a a bad king. Uh, This is the king that led the nation into idolatry, and not only led them into idolatry, he was so sold out on idolatry that we're told he even sacrificed his own sons to the false gods. This is not a good king. He did not trust God. In fact, you'll remember, uh, just to catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us, in Isaiah 7, God told King Ahaz to trust him. Israel and Syria were threatening him, saying, we're going to remove you from your throne, and we're going to put the son of somebody other than David on that throne, and we're going to get rid of you, and then we're going to stand off against Assyria. And you'll remember that there, God spoke to Ahaz, and he said, listen, you are my man. You are from the line of David. Uh, There is not going to be an end to the line of David. And so I'm going to preserve you. Just trust me. Of course, Ahaz didn't trust God. And so God said, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a son, a son named Emmanuel. And of course, we know that that son that he promised was born in Isaiah chapter 8 that we looked at last week. Uh, Now that son was the son of Isaiah and his name was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Isn't that a great name? Anybody want to name their kid Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Okay, so, Meharshallel, back in the back, very good. So we got Mahershalal Hashbaz, and he is uh, his name's interesting. It means quick to the spoil, right? So, in other words, God with us, Emmanuel, is not going to be good for King Ahaz and his people because he has not trusted God. Well, we get to chapter 9, and chapter 9 picks up where we left off, but here's the interesting thing. We're told there that God promises a second greater Emmanuel, who is going to come in the future, who is going to bring in a kingdom unlike any kingdom we have ever seen before. This is a good king. He's nothing like King Ahaz. Uh, There is no king that has been like this king, and that's the king that we get to look at this morning. This is a good day. This is a good Sunday. If you've been sad about the doom and the gloom of chapter 8, If it made you absolutely sad to see God turn His face away from His people and then experience the distress of God's judgment, this is a good Sunday because this Sunday we get to look at the King who ushers in peace. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning, this second great Emmanuel. Now, here's the way that I understand uh, this text, okay, just to to give you an idea of where we're going. Uh, You'll notice that it ends in verse 7 with this statement. This really important statement. It says there that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, what is it that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do? Well, I think it's all the stuff in verses 1 to 6. And so, as we look at this, what we're going to find is the zeal of the Lord is bringing about all that we're about to study. So, with that in mind, we'll see that the main point of this, this text, I believe, is this. And You can write this down. Jesus means that you can trust God's zeal when life gets real. Jesus means you can trust God's zeal when life gets real. And I'm going to unpack what that means. But we see it first in in verses 1 to 3 where God promises here a great future reversal is coming. A great future reversal is coming. Look with me in those first three verses again. Verses 1 to 3, here's what it says. But there will be no gloom for her, who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What an image. See here, most uh, people when they read this, I'm sure most people that would read this text, they would think to themselves, you know, I think I'm a little more familiar with Led Zepp- Zeppelin than Zebulun and Naphtali, Right? I mean, who are they? Like, they don't show up much in the Bible, but these are two of the northern tribes of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes. These are the two of the northern ones. And you'll remember uh, here that, that what God is saying is, is that He brought them into contempt because they disobeyed God. And they received curses for their disobedience instead of blessings. Now, don't miss this. These people, these lands, would have been the gloomiest and most anguished regions of Israel, both spiritually and physically. It would have been a dark place. See, physically, these two tribes were the first that fell to Assyria in 733 when they came in and, and began to overtake Israel. Uh, But not only that, spiritually, their proximity to the gods of the nations and is a home of the the golden idol that Jeroboam built in Dan. It was actually in Dan of Naphtali up in the north. Uh, They were the place that centered on the false worship of God's people. So this was a spiritually and physically hopeless place for the people of God. But notice, here there's a great reversal that God promises in the later time after God's judgment. Now, we see this first in the way of the sea, uh, that popular road that would have connected Samaria in the south with uh, the northern uh, area of Galilee, uh, Galilee of the nations. This was the same place, Galilee of the nations, where Zebulun and Naphtali are. And and we're told that it will no longer be gloomy and a road of death, but a road of life and joy and glory. God's presence will be there. Isn't this great news? God's compassion, catch this, stirs up, even as His anger pours out. Do do you see this? So you might be thinking like, well, maybe God's angry, but He's not joyful when He's angry. Or maybe God's angry, so let's just wait till He chills out so He can love again. But even in the midst of God's anger being poured on the people of God for their unfaithfulness and their injustice, God already has in His view, in His sights, a greater day of restoration and joy and peace. So that even as God's compassion stirs up, His anger is pouring out. See, God prepares mercy even as He judges justly. And here in the context, I take the people walking in darkness, those people that He speaks of, and and those who He also says are dwelling in a land of deep darkness. uh, Same language for dead darkness, maybe even the shadow of death. I think these people are actually speaking Not of people who don't put their faith in God, but the remnant of God who are waiting and hoping on God from chapter 8. See, God here is talking to a people, I believe, who are experiencing the effects of sin and the fall as they wait on and hope in God. And Here, what we find is that life has gone from dark to dead dark, and yet they have trusted God with their lives and that He wouldn't give up on their promises to them. And just when it looks like it couldn't get darker, notice that God brings light into the darkness in a new creative act. It's so much like the first creation in Genesis 1. But but what is this light? See, I believe this light is, is really amazing, okay? Catch this. I believe it is the face of grace, the very face of God shining upon them. Now just think about this. The God who in Isaiah 8 hid his face from Israel in the darkness of judgment now turns his face towards them with the blazing grace of his countless blessings, more numerous and warm than the beams of the sun, and the shadow of death is replaced by the light of eternal life. You see it? Things have changed marvelously for the people of God. And in Numbers 6, 22-27, we get a very similar image of the face of God being shed upon His people. You'll remember there that God tells Moses to tell Aaron and his sons to speak to Israel, saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, what? Make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance... You know, it's was turned away upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. I will no longer hold them in contempt. I will bless them. Not only that, notice in verse 3 that though the nation of Israel dwindled to a small remnant, God promises to multiply their numbers and their joy. See, God Himself increases or magnifies the joy of His people and they respond as they should. Do you know what the the, the right response to God's salvation and goodness and blessing is? It's not complicated. It's rejoicing. Like, that's it. Like, when you know the goodness of God, there is a response. There is a right response and a wrong response. The only right response is to rejoice in the goodness of God that has been showered upon you. And that's exactly what they do. They say it's so abundant, the goodness of God, that how could we respond in any other way than to rejoice in the greatness and glory of our God? Do you see the reverse of the curse that comes to those who are waiting on the Lord? Gloom turns to glory. The remnant becomes the multitude. Light triumphs over darkness and a magnified joy chases away the darkness of their anguish. This is what the face of God does for the people of God. Matthew tells us something glorious about the face of God and how it is turned upon us in the New Testament, where this light that we have longed for has come from. Matthew 4, you'll remember there what we are told. This very text is quoted and says that Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy here by beginning his ministry in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations. Jesus is the light, the light of of the glorious, the glorious, hopeful, future looking, glorious, blessed presence of God upon the people of God. And Jesus has arrived. And when Jesus shows up, it means that the, the face of God smiling on his people has come back. See, Jesus is the great light in the darkness. And when we look at the Son of Faith, Jesus Christ, we see what it says here in this text what is the dawn? The dawn. You notice this, this light is the dawn? You know what the dawn is? Maybe, maybe you just haven't really thought about it. The, the dawn is actually that, that, that time of light that happens as you go to watch a sunrise. The light that just precedes the, the visible sun that, that starts to illuminate the sky. Do you know what's interesting about the dawn? It's nothing like noonday, it's just a glimpse of light that is a small fraction of what we expect to come when the sun hits full noon. And here what we're told is that when this light shows up, it is just a glimpse of the light that is to come, right? So Jesus was a glimpse of the sunrise. And in Him, in Christ, we see that first glimpse of the light before sunrise of the face of the Father shining down on us with blessing amidst the darkness of this world. And that means that at this time, We only see a glimmer of what is to come. Catch this. Have you ever read the end of Revelation? If you have, what you'll notice is there's a lot of talk about light at the end. And one of the verses that I love comes in Revelations 21-23, where we are told, that one day we will not need the light of the solar sun anymore. Can you imagine that day when you go out and you don't need your sun shades, and you don't have to worry about looking up, and if an eclipse happens, you don't have to worry about going blind because there probably won't be eclipses. And why won't there be eclipses? It's because we are told that we don't need the solar sun anymore because we have the Savior sun who will light up our world. What that means is God's glory will be its light, the light of the new creation, and the Lamb will be its lamp. That is the fullness of the light that we are looking forward to. Here is a glimmer of what is to come. In other words, already in Isaiah, as he talks about this sun, he says, I want you to be thinking amidst the darkness of this day, a greater day of light that is coming, that's going to put away all the gloom, and it's going to explain everything. This day is going to explain every darkness that confuses and confounds you. That day is the day where all the questions get answered. Today's not the day, but the day's coming. And catch this, the answers are coming, and the answers will be sufficient and real. Just wait. Wait. But here we find, I believe, one of the most glorious promises in all of the Bible. We see it elsewhere, but here we see it, I believe, clearly and beautifully, and that's this, don't miss this. Every loss is a promise for God's children. Every loss is a promise for God's children. Let me explain what I mean by that. If we have put our faith in God, we are the children of God, and these promises are for us. And the picture here, as you look at these verses, just, just look at them for a moment. These first three verses. The picture here is that the sorrows that Judah experienced over God's judgment for sins. The sins of Judah and the, the death that they experienced in defeat. You notice that the judgment that came in war. The, 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 the devastation they experienced in the harvest that was lost when the, the thorns and, and the briars came in and took over the garden of God and their own spoils that were taken away after, after war. All of those things that they would really experience, we are told here, they would be restored by God Himself, and He would magnify their joy in all of these things. Do you see it? It's not just, like, here's what your joy is like. It's kind of like when you have a good harvest. It's kind of like whenever you have the spoils of war after a great victory. He is saying, do you remember the defeat Do you remember all that you lost? Do you remember the harvest that was taken away? I want you to know that a day is coming when the light erupts, when you will receive everything restored back to you, and your joy will be magnified beyond belief. And you've got to trust God in this. See, here, the spoils that were taken away from them in chapter 8 would be restored by God Himself in chapter 9. The story's not over. Now Christmas, I I know it it can be sad for many because many are reminded of all that this broken world has taken away. You know, I've already had conversations with folks all over the place. I was at a a kid's performance last week talking to a friend of mine who had a wife who divorced him and and he was just sharing with me what a lonely time it is because he's just reminded of all that's lost. You know, Maybe this is a season where you notice who's, who's not around the Christmas tree that was there last year, and, and you're just reminded of loss. And even though this is a season of giving and receiving and, and all of this beautiful generosity, you can't help but think about what's been taken away, right? And taken away, not necessarily by anyone in particular, but by a, a broken world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. The effects of sin and darkness. And it's in the midst of this season that we have this promise that comes to us and here what we find is that this promise is is the kind of promise that we need because think about this you know and i know that there are some losses things that are taken away that we lose there are some losses that replacement plans just can't fix right like you can't just say like well i you know i had this person i love and like they're gone and so now i'll replace them and so like everything's back to normal like that's not the way that it works. That's not the way that the world works. There are some losses that replacements can't fix. Only God can. See, only God can replace those things that we ourselves can't replace. Now, I don't know exactly how this works. How every one of your specific losses that are in your hearts and minds right now, even as you think about this, I don't know exactly how this works. Like just a, a you know public service announcement. I am finite and God is infinite and like I don't pretend to be able to understand all of the majesty of his ways. But what I do know is what his word says. And what his word promises me is all of those losses that I have stored up in my heart, I should not be looking at those just as negatives or debits. I look at those as promises of God. That thing that hurts so bad, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it better. I'm not just going to fix it. I'm going to magnify your joy in such a way that you understand it and you praise me all the more for it. I trust God in that. Brothers and sisters, you know that all of your losses are actually promises of God. That He will restore them. That's what God's Word says. But not only that, notice that here in this image that God gives for a remnant who are barely making it and and fearful of extinction... God speaks into that moment, and He says this. He says, guess what? I have a heart for the nations. Like, you're thinking about you, and I'm thinking about them. And them, they have something to do with you. I mean, don't miss God's heart for the nations here as He says this really unique phrase. Notice, He he moves from Zebulun and Naphtali to calling that the region, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you see it? In other words, I'm not just calling this the land of my people. I'm calling this the land of the nation's people who are far from me. I have a place in my plan, in my promise, with this King that is coming for others who are outside of the covenant of God. See, God's hope for Judah begins with borders that have an expansive view of hope even for those presently outside of God's covenant in the domain of darkness. And that means that God's enemies are those who are going to be part of this promise. See, Jesus... He's the son that God promised Abraham and David who would bless the nation, this coming Emmanuel king. But here's the good news. The New Testament actually teaches that all of us lived in the domain of darkness and gloom and anguish and were Gentiles. We were all far off from God, both Jew and Gentile. And if you're a Christian, what Colossians tells us has happened in your life is something that is startling and marvelous and amazing. Do you remember what Colossians says? We are told there that God has actually delivered us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, picked us up out of it, and He has transported us into the kingdom of what? His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? This promise is for you and me. And if you are a believer here this morning, that means that your reality has changed in ways you don't even understand yet. God has moved you. He has changed you. He now looks on you in a different way with that face of joy and approval in Christ that he once had his face hidden from you. That countenance of God towards you has absolutely changed. It is the light of God that is shed upon you because of what Christ has done. If you're not a Christian this morning, what that means for you is that you are still in the domain of darkness. And let me just tell you it's a place that that is dark beyond what you know, it is a place that is hopeless. Maybe you're happy today, but those happy, joyful feelings that you have, all of those things, they are, they are things that, that do not give you any hope for eternal life. They will not protect you. They will not bless you. They will, in the end, lead to your death. What you ultimately need is this son who gives life. If you've not put your faith in him, put your faith in him today so that you too can be delivered from the domain of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his beloved son. But there's another thing that we, I think, need to know as Christians here, and that's this. Judah is worried about surviving against the nations and God prophesies about thriving amongst the nations. Do you see that? Judah's worried about survival. Rightly so. Assyria is fearsome and they will devastate you. But even in the midst of that, God is giving them a vision of thriving amongst the nations. Let me just ask you this morning, have you ever found that in your dark struggles that they have caused you to look inward? and to neglect or forget about declaring the kingdom of His marvelous light. In other words, is your witness to the goodness of God, His goodness on your behalf, His love for you, have you noticed that those things go silent in suffering, in darkness, as this world kind of creeps in? Could it be that the darkness gets darker when we don't testify to the light? I mean, just think about it. God has made us to rejoice in Him. And I'm not trying to make small of your sufferings. Trust me, I know sufferings. I understand it. I understand how it can, it can just close up your throat and you almost can't even talk because you're just fearful. Uh, and yet, I also know that in those moments that I'm often reminded of God's abundant goodness to me even in my suffering... And I find often that that what has really helped me and what has amazed me is whenever I testify to God's goodness and I share Christ with others, that I'm actually more hopeful in my suffering. And I wonder sometimes, I'm just wondering, if when we don't share Christ in our darkness, if that's when things tend to get darker. If we're not glorifying God from the pit, is that when we lack the light to get out? I believe that what we find here is God is telling His people to testify to His goodness, trust His goodness, and have a vision for others and His vision for them as they are in the darkness of this world. But catch this. God, I love this, He is zealous. Did you see this? He is zealous for our joy and salvation. In fact, verses 4-5, to I believe they're just uh, basically an explanation of what's going on in the end of verse 3. Whenever we have this joy that's going to come, like when you gather the spoils after war, God says, let me, let me like, just double click on that for a minute and help you to understand what I mean by that joy. The joy isn't just on the stuff that you're picking up after battle. It's not just that like, oh, look at that, a new Switch. That's joyful. That's a, a Nintendo game. I know some of you were like, what's that? It's an, I have three boys, and so it's a Switch. That's what they would get excited about. Oh, look at that. It's a new car. Man, look at how good. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is the victory of salvation where God delivers his people. And we see God's zeal for our joy and redemption in verses 4 to 5 as he explains this, where we see God himself delivers his people for the sake of his son. Look at that in verses 4 to 5. This is a really good image. Here we're told in verses 4 to 5 for the yoke of his burden. And the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. I think we see a couple of images here. So the first is Egypt. You'll notice that Isaiah shifts in this text from the, the plural they and them to the singular his. I think that's important. I think that he's shifting focus here. He's shifting focus from a plural group to a singular group. And I believe that, that they were speaking about Judah, but here the, the he or his is speaking about the coming king, Jesus. So his focus here, notice, it's on Jesus. Now you remember that the king represented the people before God. Ahaz was wicked, and so his people experienced the curses of his wickedness. But a good king, this king brings deliverance. See, here the language that, that describes this king, it's interesting. It, it says the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. It, it's reminding us with this language of Israel as a nation under the slavery and bondage of Egypt. But did you notice that instead of speaking of the nation, he's speaking of this king? This king who is taking upon him the burden of the people of God? God? He's going to carry the yoke of the people of God. And God is concerned about the weight that is on the shoulders of this Son, this His, this Him, this guy, Jesus. See, God loves this Son, is concerned about delivering Him. You'll remember there in Egypt that God delivered Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus And they took off out of the land with the spoils of a great nation. They were slaves one day, and the next day they were carrying off the riches of this wildly powerful nation. And they didn't lift a hand to defeat the nation of Egypt. All they did was carry off the spoils afterwards. And so the image there is, is that God Himself is the One who is acting on behalf of God's singular Son. Now the second image... Carries the same kind of meaning. Uh, notice that there, in that last, ver- last part of verse 4, that God himself is the you. He, he is the one. You is the one who breaks the instruments of his son's oppression. So Midian, you might be thinking, what is Midian? Well, Midian comes up in Judges 6-8. to 8, And that's the place where God's hand delivered Zebulun and Naphtali from Midian through Gideon. Y'all remember that story? Gideon, of course, was uh, that great deliverer whom God said, I'm going to deliver my people with my hand through you. And so you'll remember that Gideon says, that's great. I've got 32,000 warriors ready to go. And God says, what? That's too many. It's like, But have you seen Midian? There is countless and numerous as the sands on the seashore. 32,000 isn't a drop in the bucket. Trust me. And he says, it's too much. It's too much, too many. You need, you need fewer. And so he dwindles it down to 300 men, and he says, that's perfect. And he says, here with 300 men, we're going to come, and I'm going to take over this great nation as numerous as the sands of the seashore, the same number that you'll remember God had planned for his people. And Gideon's 300, they surrounded the Midianites at nights, and did they have chariots and swords and and that kind of thing. No, they were armed with what? With a pot in one hand and a torch in the other. I mean, just think about it. You're going to fight the most powerful nation in the world, uh, or a very powerful one, and you take with yourself a maglite and a pot. Like, wouldn't that be intimidating? Well, here's the reason they took a maglite and a pot. It's because they wanted to, that God wanted them to know that there was something unique happening here. See, when they lit those torches and they broke their jars and screamed. They defeated Midian without breaking a sweat. They did not fight. They simply entered the battlefield to collect the spoils of war and clean up after what? God's victory. See, that's the same image that you get in verse 5. God's people burn their war fatigues not because they fought for the victory, but because they had been liberated to feast on the spoils of God's victory just like God did for His people in Egypt and Midian in the past. Now, the point Here, I believe, is this. When we are confronted by sin and distress, it's not a question of the size of the enemy that you see with your eyes, but about the size of the God you put your trust in with your heart. Are are you trusting a great God? If you're trusting a great God who maybe you can't see, then that is greater, a greater power than all of the enemies that you can see, and even those you can't. And God is always able to deliver His people. And catch this, not only is God able, catch what this text says, He is zealous to do it. He's not coming and apologetically saying, well man, I guess if I have to, I'll save you. It's kind of like a waste of my time. He says, no, from the beginning of time, before time began, I set myself towards this. Saving you. Redeeming you. And enhancing and magnifying your joy forever. That's my plan for your life. That's your purpose. Now why does He do this? All of this? Well, He says it's for the sake of His beloved Son. See, Jesus is the King who takes your burdens rather than giving more burdens to you. Ahaz was a king who put burdens on the back of his people. Who led them into oppression. Who led them back to slavery through disobeying God. But this king, this will be the king who loves the Word of God and leads his people back to a love of God's word and to look upon the face of God. That's the people that God the king that God has called to himself. I love what Matthew 11:28 to 30 says, "There Jesus himself says this: "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, laden, and I will give you rest. take upon." my yoke upon you and learn from me and I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you burdened this morning? Burdened with living for sin? Burdened for trying to please God based on your own efforts rather than trusting Christ? Looking to Him for what only He can provide? See, Jesus represents His people and rules over them, not for what He can get out, but for what He gives. That's what He calls His disciples to do, to live as a people who are not looking for what they can get out of things, but how they can leave others better than when they met them. As a church, I believe there's a political message here. I don't like to talk about politics much, and I won't, but as a church, we need to be careful not to put too much confidence in political parties or leaders in this world. You know, we, we can become all about political leaders and even almost say that, oh, this must be God's man. Trust me, it's not God's man or woman. Jesus is God's man. Jesus is God's king. Every other ruler pales in comparison. And as a church, we want to make sure that we are committed not to the rulers of this world, but to the ruler in heaven who has come down and who is coming back. See, the gospel has, has an answer for our political problems, and it's not a present, it's God's king. Now, if you work in in or for political leaders, I am grateful for you. I'm grateful for you more than you know. I pray for you. We have a number of members who do this. Work for our governor. I'm grateful for the work that you put in. Let me just encourage you, work hard and bless others, but always have the eye that God calls us to have an eye to here, which is a great day when King Jesus is coming back. I think that'll make your work day better. He'll make your work day better when you know that this is definitely not Jesus. Jesus is coming. He'll set things right. Today I just need to be faithful with God's given me and who God's given me. See, if you work in political leaders, I pray that God blesses you. But I think we see something else here that is glorious, and that's this. God is zealous to deliver those who are waiting on and hoping Him amidst the gloom and darkness of this life. God is zealous to deliver you and to bring you joy. In fact, catch this, don't miss this. Did you know that God is more zealous for your redemption and eternal joy than you are? It's true. Think about it. If your salvation was left to you, how many of you would be able to even make it out the back door after service without ruining it? Anybody? Like me. Like I promise. Like I'm probably even doing it right now. And I'm preaching. But you need to know and we need to trust that God himself is more zealous for our redemption and our joy than we ourselves are. And what a promise and hope that is to know that God is at war for us, that he has fought for us and he fights for us. Don't you think that the more that we trust and really believe what God has said, that he is more zealous for us and our redemption and our joy, don't you believe that as as we believe that more and as we bore that deep into our souls that our lives would look different? I mean, just the way that we would trust God's word. If you really believed that, guess what? This word is because God is zealous for your redemption and for your ultimate and magnified joy forever. Do you think that you would read your Bible differently? I think you would. I think I would if I really believed that. And do you think that the more that you believe that, the more differently you'll you'll read your Bible? That's the reality of of what God's Word means to us and this promise means to us. We can trust. We can trust that when things get dark and we think we need an escape plan because maybe there's a better plan for our salvation or deliverance from this evil or for this trouble or for this desire that I have that's not being fulfilled, that just maybe if we trust God, wait on Him and hope in Him, that God will fulfill His promise and His zeal of of fighting for our redemption and our joy. That's exactly what God wants us to know. See, God calls us to hope in Him. God's people will face suffering in this life until God delivers us. But He will bring us joy. You know, sometimes life feels darker as we wait and hope in God. Sometimes the doctor tells you the medicine isn't working. Sometimes the kids refuse to live for Christ and may even live in adamant rebellion. Sometimes husbands or wives are unfaithful to their spouses. Sometimes you can't climb out of debt. Sometimes you long for marriage or companionship in a way that isn't satisfied. And God in all of that darkness calls us to hope in Him. God's people will face suffering, but God will deliver you. I promise. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. Here's why we do it. For the joy that is set before us. Just like Jesus, who went to the cross for the joy that was set before Him. I love that God has called us to trust that He is more zealous for our redemption and joy than we are. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Nothing cheers the godly so much as when the face of God shines sweetly upon them. There's no other face that we look to for hope. It's Him alone. And I believe this deep kind of joy that Paul commanded and promised to Philippians from a prison cell in Rome Where he said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I believe that is something that he is saying, I am calling you to do it, I am commanding you to do it, and I also want you to know that I will give you that joy as a fruit of the Spirit. I will give you that peace as a fruit of the Spirit when you need it. So when things get dark, look to God for resources only he can provide, including the joy that he has called you to. But don't miss this. God alone here receives the glory for the victory of redemption. We don't add anything to the victory any more than Israel did with Egypt, any more than Gideon did with uh, the land of Midian. Uh, We don't add anything to the victory of salvation from the great enemies of sin, death, and the devil. That's something God alone does. And we are more than victors in Christ Jesus because our victory in Christ hasn't been merely procured, it's been secured. It's been given and it will be kept. The spoils... Spoils. Have you thought about the spoils in Christ? They're great. Righteousness. You can actually live a good life for the glory of God. Justice. You can live justly before God. Making things better, not worse. Uh, You can be holy as God is holy. Because He makes you that. You can have joy that God has won for you. All of these spoils that are just a down payment of the great day that's coming when noon arises. But verses 6 to 7 tell us what this great son, this beloved son, will be like. And th- that God does this for. Notice what God says about this great son in verses 6 to 7. He says this He says, God's king is greater. He's greater than Ahaz, than Moses, than Gideon, than Assyria, etc. He's better than all of them. Now notice here as you look at this description, verses 6 to 7, the beautiful juxtaposition of these different ideas that seem to be like different and opposite from one another and yet he puts them together very comfortably and he says this is actually a very coherent picture even though it feels kind of crazy in some ways and you'll notice as this Emmanuel would have had a bunch of other names that described him so let's look at this look at the verse and how God describes this king that would come he says this verses six and seven See, verse 6 is emphasizing that the child's birth will signal the light having arrived. This is the new day, the reversal of fortunes for the people of God who have been waiting on and hoping in Him. Now, to us, a son is given might sound like it's kind of the same thing as a child being born, but I think it's actually adding something. See, we know that son was a description that was given to earthly kings. Earthly kings who represented a God who was a heavenly Father in the ancient Near East. But as we'll see, this is the Son par excellence. He is not only a king born in the line of David, an earthly king, but also the eternal Son of God and very God who took on flesh. You see that right here in Isaiah. Isn't that awesome? Like, you don't even have to go to the New Testament. You can to verify that it says that. But you get all of that right here. So so notice, from here, uh, we see an interesting combination of seemingly conflicting ideas. He is a child who is able to bear the weight of the government upon his shoulders. Now think about this. Isaiah 3, children leading was judgment. Isaiah 9, this child leading is actually the reversal of the curse and blessing. It's a different kind of child. He is a child who is able to bear the government on His shoulders, but also He is born yet eternal. Do you see that? So how can He be eternal? Because like, remember, eternal goes backwards and forwards too, right? So how can He be eternal and yet born? He is the Son as well as the Father? I mean, aren't you usually the, the Son or the Father, but He's both? I love the way that Jonathan Edwards speaks of all these These words the way they come together he speaks of these differences he says this they signify and exhibit to us that variety of excellencies that meet together and are conjoined in him being christ you see it like he is the son and he is the father he is eternal and yet he entered into space and time and history He is the one who is a child who comes in innocence and humility, and yet at the same time, he comes in power, the kind of power that can hold all of the leadership on earth and in the universe upon his shoulders. He is both, he is all. He is is the lion and he is the lamb. This is a, a majestic being unlike anything we have seen before. He is no normal king, he is quite, quite the man. He is, we are told, Called a number of things here, he is called first four things, but first, wonderful counselor. Now, wonderful counselor uh, is uh, basically speaking of a supernatural counselor, one who gives wisdom. Uh, maybe in context, this is speaking of someone giving counsel for war because it's a wartime uh, context. But this this one, this king will be a supernatural. Will have supernatural wisdom. Of course, we know First Corinthians one twenty four tells us that Jesus is the very wisdom of God. And if you want wisdom from above, and that's you this morning, then you need to look to Christ. He is also mighty God. Now, don't miss this. Nobody else in the Bible is referred to as God. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, Ahaz, Gideon, Solomon, Nobody. That's blasphemy. That's why people got mad at Jesus. It's because he said that he was God. But this king will be called Mighty God. And if that's not clear enough, he's also Eternal Father. Now how can the Son who is born be Everlasting Father? I believe this is speaking to us about that mysterious union of God the Son with the God the Father. Such that if you see the Son, you have seen the Father. For they are one. To see Christ is to look upon the Father. And to behold His glory is to behold the glory of the Father. And He'll also, forth be the Prince of Peace. God told David to name His son Solomon. His earthly son, you'll remember that. Which means man of peace. And God called him Solomon, Jedidiah, Yahweh's beloved. He was a special, unique son. A son of promise. And so God speaks of one greater than Solomon who is not just the man of peace, but the prince of peace who will bring holistic peace and joy to his people. So unlike Ahaz, who is politically wise, weakly human, temporal and self-seeking and unable to bring peace to his people, this king would have otherworldly wisdom. God's power to deliver. The eternal Father who cared for his people and completely able to secure lasting peace for the children of God forever. Notice, not only this, that this kingdom isn't—it doesn't have borders that are fixed. It is expanding. In verse 7, he says, His kingdom will increase and there will be no end. In other words, it will not be contained in Jerusalem or even Israel. The borders of this kingdom are pressing outward into the whole earth and beyond. And the throne of David and his king and his kingdom will be established and upheld forever with his justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Why does this happen? It's because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did he do it because he needed us? No, he did it because he is the great, powerful God, the source of all good, who is not needy, who is all sufficient, and yet he did this because he is good and because he is zealous for his name to be great in his people. You see, this speaks of a future, eschatological, end times kingdom that is coming. I don't know about you, but when I look around, it doesn't look like this piece is broken out. It doesn't look like we have this king yet. Now, this king is yet to come. Jesus said, I am the king when he came, but he says, I am coming back. And when I come back, you will see the fulfillment of this. Here's the way that I think about it. Jesus, when he first came, it was the dawn. But his second coming marks high noon, which will last forever. That's the day that we long for. See, Jesus is the king. God wins. We get the spoils of Jesus' his work. That's redemption, sonship, holiness, etc., etc., etc, forever. And Jesus means that you can trust that God's zeal, you can trust God's zeal when life gets hard. You can trust God's zeal when life gets real, because he's fighting for you. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray.